0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, this morning we are in the book of Isaiah, so I invite you to turn with me back to Isaiah chapter, and we're picking up in verse chapter 13 this morning. And um, I want to begin by asking a question, um, a simple question, and that is, and you don't have to answer, it's a rhetorical question, but <laughs> do you pray? Do you individually, in your heart, pray? Let me ask a second question. When you pray, uh, do you thank the Lord for your salvation? Um, I think if we're honest, the answer to both of those questions, if you're a believer in Christ, is yes, you do pray, and you do pray and thank the Lord for your salvation. And so if that is the case, then no matter what you say about God's absolute sovereignty, I can be confident and know that you believe it. You see, prayer confesses that you believe yourself helpless in some way, in some capacity, and that you are utterly dependent on God. And it's an acknowledgement when we pray that God is omnipotent and God is all sufficient. That's why we pray, otherwise, we wouldn't do it. And when you give thanks to God for your salvation, you are confessing that God was the one responsible for it. And you're acknowledging in your heart that, that, that your only contribution was your sinful depravity when we thank God for our salvation. Otherwise, we would thank ourselves. And the reality is that there aren't Christians who believe in divine sovereignty and Christians who do not. There are Christians who believe in divine sovereignty and recognize that and affirm it, and there are those uh, Christians who believe in divine sovereignty and ironically speak about it as if they don't. Because every Christian, every genuine born-again believer prays. Maybe they don't pray as much as they want or as they ought, but they do pray. And every born-again believer thanks our Heavenly Father for their salvation, acknowledging it was all of his gracious work. I'm kind of paraphrasing J.I. Packer's argument from the beginning of his book, um, Sovereignty of God and evangelism and the sovereignty of God. And he goes on to say that our, on our feet we may have arguments about it, divine sovereignty. He says, but on our knees we are all agreed. And that is my point in, by way of introduction this morning. God is both king and he is judge, and we must avoid the temptation of putting him in a box and ignoring that he exercises both offices simultaneously and perfectly. Packer goes on to write, Our speculations are not the measure of our God. The creator has told us that he is both a sovereign Lord and that he is a righteous judge holding us accountable for our actions. And he says, And that should be enough for us. And then he asks this penetrating rhetorical question. He says, Why do we hesitate to take his word for it? Can we not trust what he says? And that, I submit to you this morning, beloved, is the heart of the issue that God addresses in Isaiah 13 to 23. Judah isn't sure that they can or that they even want to trust what God has said. And and as a result, they have placed their trust in a thousand other things. And these chapters that we're going to survey, we're not going to go in depth this morning, but that we're going to survey in chapter 13 to 23, they take us behind the scenes and make clear to us that that Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, is the sovereign Lord of history. And at the same time, he is the righteous judge who will deal justly with both the wicked and the righteous at the appropriate time. Chapters 13 to 23 are a series of prophetic oracles, or burdens as they're called, concerning the Gentile nations of the surrounding ancient Near Eastern world that Isaiah was familiar with in in his day. And to help us kind of understand this portion of the book, um, we can break it down into two sets of five oracles, or five burdens. The first uh, set of five is in chapters 13 to 20. And Isaiah has a word for Babylon. He has a word for Philistia. He has a word for Moab. He has an oracle for Damascus and Ephraim as kind of one oracle. And he has a, uh, a word of prophetic utterance for Egypt. And then in the second set, beginning in chapters 21 to 23, there's another set of five. Again, he leads in with Babylon. Then Edom, then Arabia. Then he has a word for Jerusalem, which is where he is. Remember, Isaiah is prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah and as well as the um, northern kingdom of Tyre. So the the way this is laid out, and if you were with us, you know, and, and you've been keeping up with the reading in in advance of our study, the first five oracles are more specific. They're very uh, they're very specific and they're also directed uh, in, a, in a very pointed way. The second set are a little bit more generalized, but each set of five burdens or oracles, which is what the term means, and, and burden has the idea of a, a, a prophetic word that must be unloaded, it must be uh, uh, get, uh, spoken forth. It begins each one of these five uh, oracles, the first set and the second, begins with Babylon. Because as we're going to learn later on in chapter 39, it was Babylon, not Assyria, who was the enemy that was going to bring Judah to its knees and into exile. So uh, again, Babylon kind of occupies a bigger space. Now these chapters are important for us as we're studying through this book and our understanding of Isaiah's prophetic word. But unfortunately and sadly, they're not that commonly taught. They're not even that commonly studied or read through when we work through the book. And that's unfortunate because if we fail to grasp the message of this portion of the book, um, we risk seriously warping our understanding of the bigger picture and message of Isaiah and his ministry. The, the big picture contribution of chapters 13 to 23 is to help you and to help me understand that all. The nations are under the sovereign control of the triune God. That is the key idea that you need to walk out of here with this morning. And because the Lord is not just the God of Israel and not just the God of the Jews and Gentiles in his church, but the God of heaven and earth, it is pointless to look to other things, other men to rescue us, in this time of adversity and trial, rather we must build our foundation on the lives, excuse me, on the life and promises of God through his Son Jesus Christ. We must build our foundation on the rock of Christ. So, the, the, the key, one of the key themes of these chapters is that it is pointless to look to the alliances of men to rescue us. We must rather look to the promises of God. But alongside that, These chapters teach us that we have nothing to fear from other people on a horizontal level. Even men and nations who wield incredible earthly power, we don't have to worry about them because in the end, in the end, there is nothing that they can do that God is not in control of. As God governs the world to its appointed end, the Lord will deliver the goods with respect to the salvation of his people and the destruction of the wicked. We must be assured of that. And these chapters then are meant to to shape our conviction that God is sovereignly directing every molecule of the universe toward the consummation of that eternal kingdom and his purposes in that. And he sits on the throne now and forevermore. And this is a message that we need to hear as the church This is a message that we need to take to heart because let's be honest, as believers, we're a lot more like Judah than we care to acknowledge, right? We are a lot more like Judah. We've put far, far too much hope in nations and human abilities and human resourcefulness and to our shame, to our shame individually and even collectively as Christ's church, we are guilty of mimicking the priorities, the methods, and the confidences that the world banks on. And to our shame, we have given our devotion to the same idols of the heart, the same idolatrous desires that the unbelieving world bows before, even dressing them up at times in religious clothing, which is even more shameful. But we don't need to do that. And that's what these chapters are meant to reinforce for us. We do not need to do that. We can trust God. We can obey his word and his promises with confidence because God and our God alone is able to do, as Psalm 115 verse 3 says, whatever he pleases. Now, if the previous chapters didn't move the needle for you as far as the assurance of God's judgment and the guarantee of his glory, I'm... Pretty confident by the time we get done with chapters 13 all the way into 27, that uh, that will tip the scales in God's favor. Um, Because there is an unmistakable testimony in these chapters to the fact that God can and must be trusted. He must be trusted, we're going to see this morning, above human power, and he must be trusted above human politics. And next Sunday, we'll see that he must be trusted above earthly possessions. In chapter twenty-three, and um, and then we'll see how far we get from there. <laughs> so I want to no, the point is that no human agency, no earthly efforts, no worldly policies are able to stop the Holy One of Israel from accomplishing His purposes and His will. Now, again, if you read through this, um, we cannot look at all of these chapters the way we've done some of the previous sections, where we're just kind of going paragraph by paragraph. Uh, that would take us a really long time. We can't even do that in two messages or three messages. But what I want to do this morning is I want to parachute into uh, just two of these oracles, two that I think are representative of some of the others. And then next Sunday, we'll look at chapter 23. Uh, and as we find that God can be trusted above earthly possessions. But what I want to look at this morning is two two of these burdens, two of these oracles that I think are representative of the whole. And that is uh, in chapter uh, 13, that God must be trusted above human power. And then chapters 19 and really chapter 22, that God must be trusted above human politics. So we begin in chapter 13, and if you're uh, uh, not there, I invite you to turn there in chapter 13 in verse 1. That God can be trusted, must be trusted, above human pride and glory and power. God must be trusted above human pride and glory and power. If you look at verse 1, we every one of these sections begins with the same heading, an oracle or literally a burden of, and he names the, the country or the nation or empire, Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. So again, we said that this... Um, This statement uh, that God uh, moved with Isaiah to see or the vision of Isaiah means that this is God's disclosure of his will in a a special way to the prophet, and he is making that known to his audience. And both Assyria at this time, if you're familiar with the history, and, and hopefully we are as we've listened to these messages, Assyria and Babylon were contemporary powers that were surrounding Judah in that day. Uh, they were, uh, Assyria at the time that this was written probably looked like the more serious and immediate threat to the southern kingdom. But it is Babylon that is singled out here at the beginning in these first set of five oracles, and again at the beginning of the second set in chapter 21. And the question we have to ask is why? Why is Babylon singled out? Why is it come first? Why is it repeated? Well, first, Babylon, let's be honest, was a force to be reckoned with on its own, they were, you know, they were clearly a a powerful empire uh, at this time throughout the ancient Near Eastern world. Like Babylon was no Rhode Island. Okay, it was it was a serious player on the world stage. Not maybe as prominent as Assyria, but they were serious. Uh, they were serious a uh, threat. Second, Isaiah knew that even though Assyria would wash over the land of Judah, we saw that back in chapter eight that he uses the language of a flood that would come up to their necks but not quite over their heads. Even though that they would do that, he knew that, God, that Assyria would not ultimately take the southern kingdom down. So he would come to know, though, later, Isaiah would, by divine revelation in chapter 39, that it was actually the Babylonians who would be the instrument in God's hand that would take them into exile. So that's, again, why they're brought to the foreground here. And thirdly, and I think this is an important intertextual kind of uh, connection, is mankind's effort to exalt himself and to try and procure security and stability and greatness apart from God began all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 9 at where? Babel. In the plains of Shinar, when man created that monument to himself and his glory and pride. In other words, more than any other name, Babylon exemplifies man's sinful desire to be his own savior and to exalt himself. And that is carried forward here in the prophetic writings as well as forward into the New Testament where Babylon becomes a symbol for the world powers who are hostile to God. We see Peter reference this in 1 Peter 5 and verse 18. Uh, in Revelation 14, Revelation 16, 17, and 18, again, Babylon is used in a symbolic way to speak of those nations which are in rebellion and hostile toward God. So here, of course, he's dealing with the actual Babylon, and he presents them as this dark horse that would rise to incredible power on the wings of its own military strength, um, to its, on its own political resourcefulness, and it would be fueled by a pursuit of its own glory and pride. And Isaiah says that superpower is no match for the sovereign Lord of history. And so he begins, and that becomes evident right out of the gate in chapter uh, uh, 13 and verse 1 two, because as we begin, Isaiah describes Babylon's judgment by relating it to the future day of the Lord that will take place at the end of human history. You'll notice this as we go through the prophets, that they jump from their present day into the near future, sometime after when they are, as well as from there to the End of the age and the uh, uh, some of the things that will happen that have yet, yet to come to pass. They are constantly moving around, and that's what we see here. Under the Mosaic Covenant, each new king was looking upon the hope and expectation of that new king stepping into rule, that he might be the, the promised king, the Messiah. They looked with hope and anticipation. And in a similar way, coming judgment is often in the prophets overlaid against the background of final judgment and ultimate judgment, such that the people would wonder, is this the last battle? So the two are connected in that sense. And that's what we see Isaiah doing here. He is jumping from their present day in you know, 700 BC to the end of the age, and he's describing what he describes as the mutual hatred of rebellious humanity that culminates in its mutual destruction that swallows up all the superpowers of the earth. But who is the one behind that? Who's the one directing things to that end? We see that it is none other than the Holy One of Israel. Look at verse 2. He says, Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. The picture is, is one of breaking down the doors and conquering and he says i have commanded my consecrated ones i have even exalted a uh, call excuse me my mighty warriors my proudly exulting ones to execute my anger a sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people a sound of the uproar of kingdoms of nations gathered together he is describing things in terms of that final day, and he describes them as being his consecrated ones, not holy in themselves, but set apart for God's purposes of judgment. They are described as the proudly exalting ones. They are, these are people who have gathered together because pride and self-confidence have consumed them, and they think that they are doing their own bidding when actually being, they've been co-opted by God. And who is the one doing this? Look at verse 4, the end of verse 4. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. This is God. All of this is God's sovereign orchestration. He is directing nations and warriors. By the Lord, it is by the Lord of hosts. And he is the one that will climax this judgment by pouring it out across the whole earth. This is the picture. The question is, will there be any refuge when this day of the Lord comes? And Isaiah makes clear that this, there is no refuge. There is no refuge where to hide verse 6 wail for the day of the lord is near it will come as destruction from the almighty therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt they will be terrified pains and anguish will take hold of them they will writhe like a woman in labor they will look at one another in astonishment their faces aflame what he describes here is the this the people are helpless they are dejected, verse 7. Their hands fall limp, their hearts melt. They are paralyzed with confusion in the day of the Lord, verse 8. That uh, Their faces aflame could be speaking of of embarrassment, at, at the astonishment of that realizing they've trusted in all the wrong resources. The day of the Lord will be marked with uh, cataclysmic judgment but also with cosmic disaster and a spiritual reckoning. Look at verse 9. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. This is that moral judgment. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. The, the, the created order is starting to fall apart. This is what he is describing here. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for his iniquity. And he continues on in chapter uh, 13 and verse 14. And it will be like, again, he, it, will, it will be like that. And it will be that like a hunted gazelle or like a sheep with none to gather them. They will each turn to his own people and each one flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be thrust through and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, their wives ravished." What we see here is that on that day, this great and awesome day of the Lord, there is going to be no protection. There is going to be no escape. Verse 15, anyone who runs away is captured and they're still struck through. And there is no mercy. Women, children destroyed. Babylon, then, this boastful superpower, along with the nations gathered together in godless pride, each trusting in its own resources and power and might. Here they are described by Isaiah as on the run with no place to hide. What Isaiah describes here is God removing his restraining hand on human depravity and letting that nuclear reaction of man's sinful passions run unchecked until the core melts down and explodes. I mean, God is not so much doing these things as he's just letting man be himself without any restraining grace. And what we see here and realize is that when people turn their back on God and his word and he removes his hand and they seek to go their own way and establish themselves, they become less than human. They become less than human. Sin is a destroyer. And sin running unchecked in the human heart makes man crueler than an animal. And and Isaiah is telling us that no one, not even the mightiest, the most exalted, the most civilized powers on the planet will be spared. This vivid, cataclysmic description of the day of the Lord is in the future. It is far off. So how can God's people know that his word is trustworthy, Isaiah? I mean, how do you know he's a true prophet, right, if he speaks the truth? Well, Isaiah then prophetically foreshadows uh, the interim destruction of, Babel, of the Babylonian Empire at the hand of the Medes, and he does that in verses 17 to 22. The near-term fulfillment validates the, the further out f- truthfulness of his words, so verse 17, he says, Behold, I'm going to stir up the medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. Their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their, their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. He's describing here this near-term fulfillment in which the Medes would come and conquer the Babylonians. And why is this going to happen? Verse 19, because of of the Babylonians' pride, because of their trust in their own power and their own resourcefulness. See, pride and self-sufficiency always ignites God's wrath. It ignites it on the last day in a cataclysmic way, and it ignites it every day in between then, leaving destruction in its wake. But again, I want you to notice, who is the one doing this? There are first-person pronouns here. Verse 17, this is God speaking, behold, I am going to do this. I am going to stir up the meads. God is the executive manager of human history. That is the lesson that is being put forward here but he doesn't just orchestrate the events of human history in terms of judgment but he also does it in terms of saving and establishing a remnant of his people and that's what we want to see in verses 14 excuse me chapter 14 verses 1 and 2 he says uh, when the lord really it should be four because it's connected to verse 22 for the lord will have compassion on jacob and again choose israel and settle them in their own land then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. This this um, short summary here lays lays out a vision and description of a new world in which divine judgment gives way to divine restoration for God's people. Animosity gives way to unity. Strife gives way to service for his chosen people. What he's describing here is the worldwide kingdom of peace that we learned about back in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, or back in uh, chapter 11, as we lurked about the righteous grant the righteous branch god's worldwide kingdom of peace is has, uh, is expanding ruled by the prince of peace and emerges out of the ashes of worldwide judgment but again as we read this the thrust of the section is this if the sovereign lord of history will destroy the arrogant power and pride of man that dominated the likes of Babylon, or later on in chapter 14, he lumps Assyria in with them in this section, or anyone else, fill in the blank. If if God will judge the arrogant power and pride of man like those nations, if God will bring to nothing those who pridefully trust in their own might in their own ingenuity and their own resourcefulness, then human power and human pride and glory are a false hope. That's his point. And therefore, God, as God's children, we must put our trust in him and him alone. So the, the first kind of burden oracle I want to look at is in chapters 13 and the beginning of chapter 14, where we see that, uh, that there is no hope uh, in, God, in man's pride or power. But secondly, I want to turn with me to chapter 19 Chapter 19. We want to look at this oracle directed at Egypt. Egypt as well. Not only must God be trusted above human power and pride, but man, uh, excuse me, God must be trusted above human politics. Human politics. Again, when the northern nations of Syria and Ephraim, were conquered by the Assyrians. The, at that time, the political center of gravity shifted south to Egypt because they were the next kind of big superpower in the area. And not only to Egypt, but also to Ethiopia, or as it's called in the scriptures, Cush. From 715 BC onward, Egypt was constantly stirring up anti-Assyrian sentiment in Judah and the surrounding nations that were left. For Egypt, the, the thinking was this, if we can just ally ourselves with some of these groups, Judah, maybe some others, then together we can throw off the yoke of Assyrian power and we can reassert ourselves as a, as a major player in the region. So for Hezekiah, who is the king in Judah at this time, remember Isaiah's ministry happened under multiple kings, Hezekiah being the, the last, um, kind of big one. For Hezekiah and his royal advisors in Judah then, there was this constant temptation to believe, well, the enemy of my enemy must be my friend. And so the thing to do is to maneuver Judah into some political alliance with this godless nation of Egypt. And Isaiah wants to make clear in this chapter and in chapter 20 that a political alliance would seal Judah's fate and not in a good way. If He says, if they jump into the boat with Egypt and Ethiopia, they will most certainly go down with that ship. And to reinforce the message, Isaiah's prophetic word in chapter 19, verse 1, down through verse 15, described the sovereign Lord of history's future judgment upon Egypt with the hope that they will turn Judah away from banking on that nation as their as their refuge, their, their protector, and their deliverer. Similar to Babylon, then, in chapter 19, God brings to the foreground that Egypt has suffered from the same sin of self-sufficiency, the same sins of self-determination, and thus have provoked his judgment. What will that judgment look like? Well, first, in verses 2 to 4, it looks like social collapse. Look at verse 2. He says, I will incite Egyptians against Egyptian. They will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized, and I will confound their strategy, so they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. In other words, divine action will frustrate every effort that the Egyptians make. Nothing will work anymore the way it was. This is a civil unrest. The the chaos of societal collapse as the government declines, it declines into dictatorship, verse 4. I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master and a mighty king will rule over them with an iron fist. That's the description there. So the picture in verses 2 to 4 is is of societal collapse as God's judgment unfolds. But not only that, it it continues in economic collapse in verses 5 to 10. The, the, The waters from the sea will dry up and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and the rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile and all the sown fields by the nile will become dry driven away and be no more and on and on he goes through verse 10 the nile river was the foundation of egypt's economy it was it, 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 the normal ebb and flow of that if that is disrupted then all agriculture is disrupted and if all agriculture is, distru- is disrupted the entire economy starts to implode so the picture in verses 5 to 10 is of economic collapse. But that gives way then to political collapse in verses 11 to 14, uh, 13. He says, The princes of Zawan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. You can, you, uh, how can men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of the ancient kings. Well then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you, and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt." The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. So again, he's describing how foolishness and confusion reign. The leaders of the nation have no wisdom. They have no discernment. Uh, They they have no uh, understanding whatsoever. And, and, and beyond that, they are actually leading the people astray into foolishness. Why are the leaders foolish? Why are they deluded? Why are they deceptive? Why are the wheels coming off? Why is the very fabric of society folding in on itself? Well, the sovereign Lord of history is judging them he is stirring up within them a spirit of confusion and ignorance. He is hardening them off in their unbelief. Look at verse 14. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They have led Egypt astray in all that it does. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit, there will be no work for Egypt, which its head or its tail, its palm branch or its bulrush may do. That picture of the head and the tail, the palm branch and the bulrush, we've seen that before. It just means from left to right, top to bottom, in totality. It's just a a figure of speech. This is God is hardening them off in their unbelief. And even though it would be plain, it should have been plain to all what the underlying spiritual issues were, both leaders and laymen are blind to what God is trying to tell them. That God is revealing to them through the spiritual, excuse me through the social, economic and political collapse. They're not they're not getting the message. What Isaiah describes here then is a total devastation of Egypt and he makes it clear that it is the Lord of hosts that is doing it. But again, just like in chapter 13 and 14, Alongside godless Egypt's judgment for its sin, Isaiah describes the Lord's salvation, beginning in verse 16. The day of the Lord doesn't just see the sovereign judgment against Egypt's sin, but through that judgment, he ushers in salvation for the nations. So Isaiah describes, and again in verse 16, an indeterminate future day when God will bring about restoration and healing. We see that in verse 22. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so that they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and heal them. How is he going to do this? How will he do this? It's worth noting here the progression that is laid out in verses 16 to 25. The sovereign Lord of history first will instill a fear of the Lord. Look at verse uh, 16 and 17. In that day, every time you see in that day, it's talking about some indeterminate future day. thinking toward the end of the age. The Egyptians will become like women and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. There is this beginning of recognition that God is God and they are not. And the fear of the Lord begins to take hold in their midst. And as Proverbs 1 verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God puts within them a, instills within them a fear of himself. Secondly, they will be, there will be a movement to prayer. Look down at verse 20. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt for they will cry out to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver him. So it begins with the fear of the Lord, and in that fear of the Lord, their true spiritual condition and troubles cause them to reach out to God in heartfelt prayer. This is just like the book of Judges, right? Where the people were oppressed, and what does the judges say? They cried out to the Lord, and what did he do? He sent them a deliverer. It's the same pattern. Restoration will take place when godless people recognize that they are not God, that they need him, and they cry out to him. Third, there is not only a fear of the Lord and a movement to prayer, but there is revelation. Revelation, look at verse 21. Thus, the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Restoration takes place when godless people respond to revealed truth. That's what God is doing. He is making himself known to Egypt in this final day. And fourth, there is genuine worship. Look at the end of verse 21. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. Egypt and the nations will worship God in spirit and in truth. The the picture here is, is in his appropriate manner. At that time, that was through sacrifice and offering, and that sacrifice and offering is brought through to completion. When they make a vow, they fulfill it. This is a, this is obedience, faithful obedience. So there's this progression of the fear of the Lord is brought to them, bear on their hearts, move, that moves them to prayer, a reception to divine revelation which gives way to true worship. And the result, verse 23, is peace. Peace. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. He's describing the nation's coming under one banner, where earthly power and political maneuvering provoke conflict and division and judgment. True religion, based on divine revelation, restores, unifies, and saves. And so so the the portrait here is of believing Jew and Gentile, one new humanity, united under the banner of Messiah, who is all and in all. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. These are not nations that got along, Egypt and Assyria. There was no highway from one to the other or vice versa. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation are worshiping the Lord together and accept one another because they have been accepted by the Lord. But make no mistake about it. It is the sovereign Lord of history who is accomplishing this work. It is a sovereign Lord of history whose hands are behind it all. That's, it sounds almost impossible to, it would have sounded impossible to his hearers. That these things would happen. So again, how would they know that these things were true? How would they know that God was going to accomplish them? And to reinforce the message that a political alliance with Egypt and and Ethiopia was a false hope, God told Isaiah to deliver a shocking object lesson in chapter 20. Much like before, the question is, how can Judah be sure that this is this seemingly unbelievable judgment and salvation that Isaiah has just described and prophesied about. How is he going to be sure that's going to happen? He says, I'll give you a near-term fulfillment. You want to trust me? Trust me in what you see now, and you can trust me in what I've said is happening in the future. And in chapter 20, then, he describes when the Assyrians conquered Ashdod. Ashdod is a city on the coastline of Israel. It was its own little kind of thing. Back then, they were conquered by the Assyrians who themselves had an alliance. And the Ashdod, the kingdom of Ashdod had an alliance with Egypt already. And Egypt basically didn't help them. And God moved upon Isaiah to act out visibly the fate of those hauled away by Assyria in Ashdod to reinforce this reality, the trusting in Egypt and in Ethiopia, instead of God, was foolishness. It was foolishness. So what did he have him do? Verse 2 of chapter 20, at that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, go, loosen the sackcloth from your hips, and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so going about naked and barefoot. Verse 3, and the Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Isaiah paid the price of obedient identification to the Lord's word. This word in the original language that's translated nakedness can sometimes apply to partial nakedness, so it's possible that God commanded Isaiah to walk around in nothing but a loincloth. But some other commentators said that that's not the normal use of the word, and so it's very possible he was walking around stark, raving naked for three years. But the com—but again, at that time, that was When an enemy conquered a foe, they would commonly strip them naked and humiliate them as they led them captive. It was a way to just just, um, embarrass them and and bring them as low as they could possibly take them. But whatever the situation is here, Isaiah was set to experience an extended period of humiliation and exposure, but that was an object lesson for Judah. Again, these, these prophecies are not going out to the nations. They're for Judah. They're for God's people. And so as Assyria hauled away the people of Ashdod, they would see just how futile it was to trust in Egypt. And as Assyria eventually attacked and conquered Egypt itself, Judah would see how futile it was to trust in Egypt. And the prophets frequently paired their spoken word with visible demonstrations of that word. Jeremiah does this in chapter 13 of his book. Um, He does it in chapter 19. Ezekiel does it in chapter 5, and again in verse 12, where they act out the word as well as speak the word. And so for three years, the people of Judah watched Isaiah wander around with this shocking message that confronted the sensibilities and the refined politicians of Judah who were just enamored with Egypt as the Savior Egypt as the political alliance that promised to deliver them. But those who watched Isaiah would have gotten the message if they were willing to listen. And even if they, because it was so shocking, it was so obvious. When they see their hope in Egypt and Cush led away captive by the Assyrians, they will realize the foolishness of trusting in them instead of God. Orchestrates the rise and fall of nations. The message is reinforced very straightforwardly later on in Isaiah chapter thirty-one. We'll turn with there for just a second in verses one to three. Isaiah is delivering the message not by walking around with no clothing on, but in verse thirty-one, uh, chapter thirty-one, in verse one, he says, "Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses." He's speaking to Hezekiah. And trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet he, all, yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise when the house of, uh, against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. There's something fundamentally different about God than Egypt. He says, so the Lord will stretch out his hand and he who helps Egypt will stumble and he who is helped will fall and all of them will come to an end together. Here again, we see that the sovereign Lord of history is going to cause this false hope of Egypt to stumble and all who trust in her will, will stumble with her. They will, back to chapter 20, they will all be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and in Egypt their boast. And so the inhabitants of this coastline will say in that day, wow, behold, such is our hope. (laughs) Where were we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria? And we, how shall we escape? He was meant to show them that if you put your trust in them, They will be led away, and you will lose as well. I think think these verses are a good reminder for God's people in his church. Because as long as I've been alive, evangelical Christians have carried around a misplaced trust in political power as a solution to what ails us. We see societal chaos, we see economic chaos, we see political chaos— And the thought process is, if we can just get the right man, the right party, the right allies in the quarters of power, then we can get things back on track. And like Judah, in fear and unbelief, we we can yield to the temptation that the enemy of our enemy is our friend. And uh, thus, we need to hitch our wagon to this godless person or that political platform or get these laws passed or kick this party out of office and everything will be better. But what we don't realize is the chaos is a symptom of a deeper spiritual disease. The chaos is a a symptom of wholesale, godless rebellion across the land. And what we need is a revival of the truth of God. What we need, and that not in the form of performative religion that's done for show, but in the sincerity of private devotion, lives and hearts transformed through belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's people need to anchor their hope to his unfailing promises and the power of the message of Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And we need to proclaim that to every lost soul. That is the answer to our problems. Anything else is putting band-aids over bullet holes. The sovereign Lord of history is going to judge the wicked and every political refuge that you or I flee to for help and deliverance. I promise you on the authority of the word of God, they will be led away, humiliated and exposed, bankrupt and powerless. When you read through these chapters... 13 to 23, in other prophetic portions of Scripture, it is important to realize that since God has fulfilled these prophecies for Babylon, for Egypt, Tyre, and these other countries that are mentioned here, these other nations, then God will fulfill his prophetic word in establishing his kingdom. We have to understand that. In the investing world, investment firms like this always, I think they have to legally say this, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Right? Every time you see a prospectus for anything, past performance is no guarantee of future results. And while that's true of earthly investments, that is not true of our investment, both body and soul, in Christ. That is simply not the case. Past performance is, in fact, a sure guarantee of future results. We don't know the day or the hour, But the end of it all is firmly established, and it will not fail. God's purposes will not fail. The point is that like the remnant in Judah, we're to remain faithful and patient, fully invested spiritually with Christ at all times. Like Judah, we need to be challenged not to put our trust in what we see, whether that's human pride and glory or human politics, because those things are temporary and those things are passing away. Peter addressed this concern that we see laid out in these chapters. Peter addresses that in 2 Peter chapter 3. And this is where I want us to conclude this morning. Look at 2 Peter 3. Peter is addressing um, the fact that in his day, or in some future day, mockers were going to mock, and scoffers were going to scoff, and the faithful would start to question, can God still be trusted? You know? Is God still on the throne? Is God still with us? In verse eight of chapter three, second Peter three, he says, "But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter says God's timing works differently than our timing. God's timing is, uh, is slower than our timing. And then he reminds us that God's slowness isn't actually a deficiency, it's a mercy. Do you see that? God's delaying the consummation of all things, the struggles of his people is actually a feature, not a bug. And his purposes in all of it is so that more and more souls will have an opportunity to come to repentance and faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have to understand that sometimes God brings things down in order to lift others up to the true knowledge of Christ. But when his mercy is exhausted, things will move quickly. And definitively, and the opportunity for turning back to the Lord will slip away before they realize it. And that is what he says in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So he's saying God is patient. You be patient. And that patience is necessary for the salvation of many. But when that mercy is exhausted, like we just saw in detail in Isaiah, um, everything is going to come unglued, and God's judgment will come swiftly. So what is the application for us as we wait, as we watch, as we trust in the Lord? It's this, verse 11, four things real quick. Be holy be holy. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, since you know what I'm going to do, he says, What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, for us, the, the, the thing we need to be most concerned about is not what's going on out there or the, the, all this, but our own holiness. Our own holiness. We also need to be watchful, verse 12 and 13, looking, we're to be doing this, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But he says, according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so we, we are not only walking in obedience and holiness, but we are to be watchful and waiting and hopeful knowing that God will bring things to his appointed end. Third, we need to be found found in Christ. We need to be found in Christ. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. The warning, the application is while we wait, We want to make our calling and election sure by walking in persevering faith. Make it sure to us, not to God. (laughs) And we want to make sure that all who have an opportunity are found clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So we go out and we preach the gospel. And lastly, we are to be growing in the grace and knowledge of God. Look at verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. (laughs) That's what we're to do. To him is the glory, both now and the day of eternity amen so so as we see the world coming apart and we 're tempted to question whether or not God is on the throne and if we, as we see a societal collapse, economic collapse, political chaos, as we look to um, those things and, and, it, and it causes us anxiety and fear and We need to not look to human power. We need to not look to human politics as a solution. We need to be holy, watchful. We need to make sure that we are truly born again, and we need to be growing, maturing in the grace and knowledge of God. That's our job. That's our concern. That's what needs to capture our hearts and minds. And if we do that, we will be found in him, in all the promises of God, what? They find their what? Yes, in him. If we're in him, they're as good as yes. We can trust him. And we can trust him because he is the sovereign Lord of history. Only the sovereign Lord of history who can direct all things can make sure they all come to pass. And that is what we want to take away from this section. Next week, we'll see in chapter 23 that not only we cannot trust in power, politics, we're also not to trust in possessions, as he has a woe, a burden for Tyre, because they were this lucrative, uh, financially uh, and and economically powerful region, and uh, that was a false temptation as well. And he says, none of that, none of that is trustworthy. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for this uh, study that you've given to us. Thank you for kind of knocking us loose from so many of the things that distract us. Um, help us to remember that uh, you are. You are indeed the sovereign Lord of history and uh, you are working all things together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purposes. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to trust in you. Uh, help us not to run to those things which would be our, to be our harm and destruction, but see within those, 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 those uh, struggles and those difficulties, the things around us, may we see the mercy of God and the patience of God which are, of course, to lead many to the true knowledge of Christ. Lord, if there's any here this morning who are not sure that they are found in Christ, may they run to you and find you to be, as we have found you to be, uh, one who will receive the lost. Lord, we thank you that you died, that you live again, and ever live to make intercession for your people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at CascadesBibleChurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.